0: Welcome to The Podcrastinators, bringing you a mixture of comedy, social, and political commentary from New Zealand and around the globe. In other words, the show that's meant to make sense of everything, but quite often doesn't. Hello, I'm Darren Lees, a globally experienced businessman, politically to the right, stand-up comedian, comedy writer, and of course, podcast presenter.
1: And I'm Matt Danaher, I'm an amateur writer, traveller, podcaster, and Instagram influencer and professional union organiser and socialist who likes to be optimistic about a future.
0: Welcome to Podcastinators Season 2, Episode 4, and tonight we are delighted to be joined by New Zealand-born, Australian-based musical comedian Richard Lindsay.
2: Hello, Welcome, good Richard. to be here.
0: It's good to have you. Darren, stop leaning back in your chair. That, well, that won't make any sense to anyone listening to this. <laughs>
1: So for those that can't see Darren, which is all of our all
0: five hundred or so of our listeners, um, he keeps leaning back in his chair, and that's when he goes quiet. I'll try and stay static. I didn't take any ritalin tonight, so that's probably a problem, right?
1: <laughs> oh God! <laughs> right. Well, we're joined by um, as as you said, uh, we're joined by musical comedian Richard Lindsay, and you're currently based in Sydney. That's right.
2: That's correct. Yeah, as of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, which is exciting. Nice to be back to what I really consider my comedy home.
0: And which part of Sydney are you based in?
2: I'm at the moment. I'm in Chatswood, which is in the northern suburbs of Sydney, which is probably where I remain.
0: Yeah, it's a great location because it's so close to everywhere. Really, because you're on a major transport link there, right?
2: Yeah, totally. And it's um very multicultural. So as a foreigner, it's kind of nice to be somewhere which is a bit different. That. There's, you know, multicultural.
0: Yeah, you get uh, pretty good Chinese food in um, Chatswood. There's a heap of great Asian-style restaurants around there,
2: yeah? Yeah, yeah. And it's been interesting seeing how it's changed since I first moved there 20 years ago, which is because um, there's double and a half the population than when I was last year. Um, wow. But it's got so cool. It's kind of like, did you ever watch that TV show Firefly or Serenity?
1: Yes, now you're it's quite, the it display.
2: feels a bit like the future there in a way. Do people wear long brown raincoats and or dust coats? I guess they don't wear brown coats, but yeah, they do. It is kind of um, quite bright and shiny and kind of a mixture of Asian and Mandarin um, all over the place. It's really quite well, is an awesome Firefly place.
1: Where you get the space cannibals like trying to attack the ships. I'm sure that's Firefly, isn't it?
2: The so, it sounds Reapers like it or something. That's right, the Reavers, yeah.
1: Yeah, space zombies—that kind of. So, do you have them in Chatswood?
2: No.
1: Good.
0: God damn it, Chatswood changed a lot in the two years since I left. <laughs> I um, I like going down a sci-fi
1: route because it makes Darren uncomfortable and out of his depth. Whereas talking about Sydney suburbs leaves me uncomfortable and out of my depth. The only okay. Sydney suburb I'm familiar with is a place I think it's—is it Kajagugu Beach?
0: What? Oh,
1: Um, It's where the sea baths are. There's a sea, and it's where all the. I was there at New Year's Eve a couple of years ago, and it was just full of drunk British
2: people. Oh, Bondi, yeah. No, it was
1: just down from Bondi Beach. Could could you? Could you? That's it. Yes, could you beach, yeah. If it
0: was Kajagugu Beach, you'd be too shy, shy to go, wouldn't you? No. Yes. Yeah, those those beaches
2: over there, yeah.
1: Musical that's a, that's, comedy. That's a great segue, isn't it, into, um, Richard, you're a musical comedian?
2: I am now, yeah. I didn't used to be, but I am now. Yeah.
1: And what does that mean? How does your musical comedy manifest itself?
2: How does it manifest itself? I use woodwind instruments, which is quite quite uncommon, I found. Mm. And I theorised over this. And I remember at first when I started using woodwind instruments, I... I was at a point in my comedy career where I needed to make my act a bit different because um, it was getting a bit stagnant. And I thought, what else can I do? And I thought, well, I can play the flute quite well from when I was at school. And I thought, but that's no good because you can't play the flute while doing comedy because it uses your mouth, so you can't talk. <laughs> and I thought, hang on, what? No, there must be a way of doing it somehow. And I set myself a little challenge of bringing it with me on stage um, until I figured out a way to use it. And then it became a main thing. You know, flutes and recorders and those kinds of things.
0: So, what, what was it that kind of drove it? Was it just some, you, you felt that the act or your, what, what part of it did you feel was stagnating?
2: Well, I started off in comedy um, doing straight one liners, kind of deadpan one liners, staring at the back of the room without moving, kind of maybe a bit more like if you might know English comedian Milton Jones. Yes. yes. I mean, I'm not, I, don't really like to compare myself to someone so good when it comes to one-liners, but a couple of other people kind of said it had that kind of feel. And I found that I got to a certain stage in comedy. Like the one-liners, um, people would say they're good and they worked, but it just didn't bring any energy to a room. And I, in, in the UK particularly, you have three different spots in a set. In a comedy night, you have an opener, a middle act, middle act and a closing act. The middle act being a new, the newest, the opener being uh, a more of a professional, established act, and then the closer being the headliner, the um, probably the most established, uh, most experienced act. And I couldn't And the middle was generally for newer acts, and I couldn't get myself past that. I couldn't get to doing the opening stage, and largely. It was because I didn't bring energy. The first act on has got to bring some sort of energy, some sort of something that's different, some sort of thing that's memorable. And I remember someone telling me at the time that also to do headline spots, you've got to have something which is memorable, something that's a bit impressive. And yeah, then that, that's what got me thinking. And then as soon as I started doing anything with music, I found that it just brought so much more energy. It was so much more interesting to the audiences than just listening to a lot of words Um, which my act, my act specifically, um, I'm not saying that all stand-ups just listening to a lot of words. My act specifically was just listening to bunches of words all together um, with a laugh point, which has a kind of diminishing returns, one line of jokes when you do them for 10, 20 minutes, uh, no matter how good they are. So, yeah, that's that's how it came about. And then sooner, then a little bit later, it became kind of half jokes, half one line, half musical comedy. Then... Sooner or later, it just became mostly musical comedy.
0: So one-liners, there's obviously some pretty big one-liner comedians out there. You said Milton Jones, Gary Delaney and others. They they seem to pop up um, and and they seem to go real big, real quick. But do you think there's a lifespan on being a one-liner comedian?
2: I guess there's not overall because, I mean, people like those can do well in it, like Jimmy Carr, um, Milton, them can do well in it. But for most of most of successful one-liner comedians, it takes them a long time. I mean, it takes everyone a long time to get really good at comedy, generally. But um, like Milton Jones has been going since the mid-90s. I guess back to the question, the question was, do I think it has a shelf life, right?
0: Yes, that's correct, yeah.
2: Yeah, probably no. It just, it probably doesn't. So probably if I stuck with one-liners and found another way of making Doing one nine is interesting, I I could have, um, which other one-liners do. So, like Milton Jones, he starts, he uses visual stuff part way through his set, he'll Do jokes, do a bit of visual stuff, um, visual puns, then go back to jokes. Um same with Jimmy Carr, he'll do some jokes, he'll do a bit of interaction, then go back to the jokes. I guess I was using music for that at first as the kind of break from the jokes, but then I just found over time that I preferred the musical stuff overall anyway. And I was better at it, um, so yeah, that's just where it went.
0: Did you find through that period of stagnation that you ever thought of giving up?
2: Uh, no, I was kind of puzzled about what to do, but no, I didn't get, didn't really think about stopping. Um, I've always been inquisitive with things, so it was, it was more like what's happening, what's going on here, um, and it was it was around the specific time I was thinking about was around 2016 2017 when I'd be going for about five or six years which is generally the time when a lot of comedians are starting to get okay but usually hit a bit of a wall and need to yeah it kind of can tattle bit before you get to the next level
0: yeah the reason I asked is because I think I don't know about you Matt I certainly went for a period where you kind of doubt who you are as a comedian you know am I the right persona Am I doing the right material to be able to go back and reinvent yourself, which technically you did. I think for our listeners, especially some of the newer comedians, it's great to hear from someone who's vastly experienced like yourself of how you went through that transition and then confidently stuck with a different route.
2: It was interesting because it was kind of more like an evolution of the persona. So the persona itself didn't really change. So when I first started off before I knew any knew much about comedy I had a lot of professional people saying, wow, look at you. You found your persona really early and quickly, but I didn't really know what they meant at the time. Um, So that kind of made me stick with what I was doing. And um, people people who do sitcom writing generally write down aspects of the character, so kind of define the character. I say these are the top three kind of positive character traits. These are the shadow character traits. I went through that and kind of defined what my character is and that largely hasn't changed. It's just been the same um, character with the same kind of world viewpoint with more energy with music and probably more outwardly confidence, confident. confident. I didn't, I wasn't really ever unconfident on stage, but looking back at videos, it looked like I was. So yeah,
1: yeah. I was wondering about that. That about that part of your act actually, um, because there's there's a lot of, and it seemed to me that it was clear that it was an act on your part, but it was a good act. Um, and there are comedians that do stuff like that, but there's also, I always wonder because I've experimented with that being nervous on stage kind of thing or being a bit unsure, sort of deliberately. And I've always wondered about how much people, when they look at it, think that I'm genuinely nervous and whether that like lowers their expectations and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing I don't
2: know but like my act isn't trying to come across as nervous but it it does need to shine a basically shine light on itself that there's something wrong that this character um, is a little bit otherworldly is a little bit of an outsider is a bit odd Mm. and I guess yeah that was that was where when I had lower energy, that of, that often looked like it was nervous. But as I amped the energy up, it became a bit more evident that it wasn't nervousness. It was just this weird kind of persona, that this kind of unusual persona, which is kind of a bit based upon myself, um, that I was putting across.
0: So you're obviously well-traveled. It'd be good to just get a little bit of a background about yourself. Um, you know, Obviously, did you travel young as family, or would these travels through the U.K.? New, from New Zealand to the UK to Australia, were they adulthood travels and what, what inspired
2: that? It was adult. like My wife and I, um, girlfriend at the time, in about the year 2000, um, we were living in New Zealand and we both were at the stage where we were looking to move out out from living with parents. And we basically, I guess in a bit of naivety, just looked at, in New Zealand we found there wasn't a bunch of work available for people, particularly we weren't, we didn't go to university, we didn't do anything like that, but there was a bunch of work in Sydney. So we moved to Sydney. And yeah, it kind of went on from there. Um, New Zealanders and Australians often go to the UK for two-year working holiday visa kind of periods. So then I then I did that. Um, then came back to Australia, started Comedy in Australia, thought I'd try it out in the UK, took it to the UK. And now I'm back again. There's a couple of little one or two year living um, times in New Zealand as well. I guess I'm a bit like a traveler, really. We don't, neither of us really consider it a problem moving. And it always adds a lot of variety.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And obviously, all three of us are from different parts of the world have ended up traveling mm. and lived, ended up living somewhere where we weren't born effectively. But that's right. This is a very diverse podcast. In this episode, in
2: particular, I didn't think I would, but I did, because like, my my act is never based upon anything local, anything real, anything um, um, pol- political, anything. Like it's it's all based upon just nonsense and and silliness, and generally, I when I write a piece of material, I think, well, this does this have any references that people need to know to understand it? And if it does, I generally put it aside. Um, the difference, though, is in Sydney. Um, at the time, no one did one-liners, or very few people did one-liners. There was a handful of there's a couple, a, a professional guy and a, another one or two um, newer open mics, But it was quite an unusual thing, and it kind of stood out because of that, and it was interesting because of that. Um, also, Australians don't have um, pantomimes. They don't have pantomimes. They're not brought up on. Um, reacting to wordplay-based language and puns, like you are in a pantomime, and yeah, it was kind of quite. It was had a bit of an excitement about it. Then I moved to UK, and tons <laughs> of people did one-liners. Yeah. You know, every every man and their dog and um, liked um, one-liner jokes, and it was nothing. It was nothing interesting, nothing new. So I guess it from kind of standing out a bit to not really standing out at all is what I noticed. However, then when I went to European countries, I found it was back being back a bit more like Australia. So I went to Denmark and um, Czech Republic um, as a couple of places. And to them, one-liners was, was really cool and interesting again.
1: When you go to countries like that, are you mainly performing to locals um, or are you performing more to sort of English speaking immigrants?
2: Um, It's, about half and half in most places. Yeah, and in some of the places, particularly Denmark, they seemed to have such a good grasp. It was mm-hmm. they seem to have such a good grasp on the English language that they often got the subtleties of what I was saying better than an English crowd. <laughs> so Yeah,
1: well Dane, Danes are better at English than a lot of English
2: people. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to exactly say it um, overly, but yeah. Um same with, same with Czech Republic. Same with um, Vienna as well. Mm. In, in general, yeah. It, 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 yeah, it tended to work. Tended
0: to work well. You only have to listen to English people trying to speak English in Spain and they talk four times slower and three times louder. Yeah. <laughs> as, a to, as a way to get across how to pronounce something in English, which, of <laughs> course, nobody is ever taught English that way. But uh, when English people go on holiday and they go into a Spanish shop, it's appalling to watch, actually. (laughs) They go and they go, cigarettes. And it's like, no Spanish person got taught to pronounce cigarettes like that. Um, And so we are probably the worst people of promoting our (laughs) own language of anybody in the world. We're terrible at it.
2: This might be something that you guys experienced going to New Zealand. I'm not sure. But another thing I found going from Australia to the UK is there was, I mean, there's a lot going on in comedy when you're saying stuff. They've got to take in your words. They've got to take in um, how you look and they've got to, how you're saying something they've got to interpret it, or any kind of barrier can hurt, can kind of be. And I found that one of them for me was just having an accent, even though I've got a accent, which is understood by British people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one little thing, which was another little barrier. So one thing I found there at, in the UK is I need to slow down. and so I slowed down how the pace I spoke by about a third. and that that's, really...
1: that's really interesting actually because um, I've been told the same here, definitely about slowing down, and it's always seemed to me that you're quite carefully spoken quite softly spoken. Like I can't, it's hard to imagine that, you know, four and a half years ago, five years ago, before I came here, that I would have found you any harder to understand. But I think you're absolutely right about the barrier um, that having even a very faint accent
2: um, creates. Yeah. I mean, it's just a combination of things. Like you're in a, you're in a club, there'll be a little clink of glasses. There'll be a little, somebody Mm. will hear a little laugh. There's all these little things. And yeah, just one other tiny little thing. Then I found I've been in New Zealand for a few weeks recently, which is where I saw you two last, and I could amp, I could ramp the pace up again, which is quite fun. And I'm about to do my first weekend of shows here in Sydney as well, and um, likely will be the same, be able to just keep the pace up yeah. like I did in New Zealand.
0: So we've been able to increase that pace, does that increase the energy of your act? Does it change in any way by having to, slow
2: down generally when i do it faster i can fit more material in that's my favorite thing (laughs) of course (laughs) but it doesn't i guess it doesn't i guess it does bring the energy up a little but i try to bring the energy up when i'm delivering at a more considered pace as well but um generally the amount of average the amount average amount of times that i get laughs is the same as well so it's just like mm. if I do a joke quickly and understand a joke slowly and understand it's still like um on average uh, 3.5 seconds laugh or whatever in a normal piece that works and so I can still time it out. But yeah, in, in New Zealand, I found that because I just naturally increased the pace, I ran out of material and had to had to play around <laughs> a bit more and think, okay, what else, what else am I gonna do here? What instruments do I have on stage? What can I do with them? <laughs>
0: So apart from playing flute at a younger age and everything, did you have any other connection to entertainment? So when me and Matt did the comedy school last year, there were people that had done acting, there were people that had done improv. Had you done anything before you decided to take up stand-up or was that your kind of first venture into live entertainment, so to speak? Not
2: since I was a um, early teenage, uh, mid-teenager, so about 14. So when... It- I did, um, I played flute up until I was about 14. I did professional ballroom dancing. My wife and I did professional ballroom dancing up until about probably 16. Then um, we didn't do anything else until I was 35 when I started stand-up comedy. So no, it's just a big gap in entertainment. However, my, um, my day job work, in a way, it's not about entertainment. It's using the same mechanisms of entertainment to get a message across just instead of the reaction to the delivery of the message being laughing, it's got to be um, interest or understanding. So just like when, you, when I tell a joke to an audience, I've got to put the words in a specific way that, so they understand it. And the outcoming um, kind of reaction is something that makes them laugh. In my business work, it was the same kind of formula, often the same kind of joke structures but just to get them to understand or feel a certain way to lead them to make a decision. So, yeah, I kind of feel like the business is kind of like a, a, a bit of a show as well in some ways.
0: What were you doing in business that, uh, that, that, that meant that you had that training, so to speak? What what job were you doing?
2: The job that I have done for a long time is uh a architect, a technology IT architect, which is a lot of that is around um, being a bit of detective. So you've got to go out into a business and figure out what people want and need and distill that, explain it back to them so they understand it, then to be able to create something with a group of people that's going to solve that problem and then deliver that, then help deliver that solution back to the people. So there's a lot of translation from different, um, levels of understanding going on. And I felt I was kind of a communicator and translator. And I guess I didn't have any formal education around this kind of stuff. But the first three years of my work career, I worked as a salesperson on a shop store for a shop called Dick Smith Electronics,
0: yes.
2: which isn't around anymore. But yeah, I guess that was my training in how to communicate with people and how to you know, put ideas across and influence people. I didn't think that at the time, I just thought it was a, uh, just a kind of an okay job, but yeah, it was, really was a good influence. I guess also I I've always been a bit of a language geek. I studied language, particularly originally through a something you might've heard of called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, yeah. which is kind of a shoot off of some other um, philosoph- philosophical language based fields, cognitive linguistics, transformational grammar. Which are all about how um, the use, the people's use of language reflects the way they're thinking about a thing, which affects how they feel. Which I always found really interesting. Which, as well as that being the case in business, um, was also the case in comedy as well.
1: Yeah, that's um, that's really. It's probably a really good segue into your metaphors of comedy stuff that you might want to talk about. Um, without giving away too much of course um but uh because I, th- I think something that certainly resonated for me when because when, obviously that's how me and darren both met you um something that resonated for me was i think probably both of us in our day jobs in our very different day jobs apply quite a lot of the same techniques that you're talking about as well and it does make me wonder how many people in comedy have kind of come to it through that route um consciously or otherwise um the idea of trying to sell an idea or sell a message or um, influence people's behavior and so on. Um, Yeah, so I don't know if you want to talk
2: about the metaphors of comedy at all. To answer what you just said, that's kind of, I hadn't really heard anyone explain it in that way. I hadn't really heard of people saying that doing comedy is like presenting in business or use similar skills. I'd seen people who come from business backgrounds who were good at comedy, but I'd never heard them kind of mention that one influenced the other. And it is is an interesting thing. At the time when I started comedy, I was deep in um, some study around um, human behavior and around what made things funny or what made people funny. And there's a a bunch of information I came out of that, much of it, which didn't end up being useful. Um, But one of the things that I found for me is... That for me, so I'm just losing a chain of thought here. It might need to be a bit of an editing bit, <laughs>
1: that's okay, yeah,',
2: yeah. I guess what it was was i I studied how people did things, and I basically used that for a bit, and then chucked it all the away and made up my own stuff. <laughs> so, yeah so so yeah, I started off studying how other people did things, so. I studied how Jimmy Carr write jokes particularly because he was someone I liked the jokes of at the time. Um, and I studied the structure, the linguistic structure of how he wrote jokes and, um, found that he had probably 15 or 16 different structures. And then I could borrow those structures and put other stuff in them. And they became jokes too. I uh, looked at how they used their hands, how they use their body, how they use their voice and figured out how people made that funny. Um, And out of that, I came up with just too much data, too much information about how people made things funny. And then I was talking to to one person. I said, well, what's comedy like for you? And that became a bit of a key question. It was a question which I asked partly because I've been going through some um, psychotherapy study because I've been at times been a part-time psychotherapist. Um, I was working with. Learning off a guy called Andrew Austin, who had a has a psychological protocol approach called metaphors of business, which is around asking what something's like, and then exploring the like rather than exploring the actual thing. And this one person who was really confident in comedy in no matter what situation that she was in, I said, well, "What's comedy like for you?" And she said, oh, it's just like when I'm at school teaching the kids." And I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. Mm. I hadn't heard people say that before." And I thought, "What a what do people generally say comedy's like? And generally I got generally when I'd been listening to people talking about comedy, it was all, all of these ghastly um, conflict metaphors. Like I say, it's like um, you're on a stage and people are shooting at you and you want to tell jokes and kill them. And uh, if they, if they win, you die and all this really harsh conflict stuff, which kind of reflected the general feeling and feelings and way that people thought about comedy as something that's, difficult in conflict and um public speaking in general is a really a number one fear of so many people and i guess thinking of one thing thinking of a thing which is basically just saying some words and doing some stuff in front of the group as being like a conflict in war there's no surprise that you feel potentially feel bad about it if it's something that's life or death so then your metaphors of comedy was but started off with that and and I started thinking, well, if a large amount of the population of comedy think that use terms and therefore conceptually think of comedy as being like a battlefield, what are the alternatives? What could be better? And I thought, well, everybody has some sort of situation in their life that they're comfortable communicating. And everyone, everyone's comfortable speaking with someone in their family, someone. Um, some people might even just be people on online games or their family or their friends, Mm -hmm. but everybody's comfortable communicating and dealing with interruptions like you get in comedy. So I thought, well, what if we got them thinking of comedy in the terms of those things instead? Would that make it so that therefore they would be better at presenting themselves in comedy more confidently and dealing with things that happen in comedy? And I did a couple of workshops around this and it did work. And often I'd have quite remarkable changes with people. Like the courses had the courses um, have the people performing some material at the beginning, then at the end again after they've learned this stuff. And often just the change is quite remarkable. And I thought, cool, this is really great. Because all, all I've really done is got them to do something that they already could do. Yeah. Just in a different context. Also, I found that even if there wasn't a big difference in their performance afterwards, that often present to me, like say to me, that there was a big difference for how they felt about it. So, whether or not the act seemed different, they felt a lot better about themselves while doing it, which will make them better. Yeah.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I um I, I definitely took on some of the thoughts from there and I've been applying them since and done a few gigs since then and I have felt it has made a difference. I have felt a bit lighter about it. Come cool. yeah. A bit less of a weight on my shoulders.
2: Yeah. Is it interesting? we mid for a of weight on your shoulders too. Yeah. But I mean, if you feel if you feel a bit better, it probably comes across as a lot better in general. Mm. Than others, because yeah, I've if people If people aren't feeling right on the stage, it usually is quite quite a bit more obvious to others but yeah i'm also i'm I'm also now developing on other areas where this kind of um conceptual mapping could be useful. so another area is how people think about creativity, so people often think of creativity in certain ways which aren't really useful for being creative um yeah but they are creative in other parts of their life or there are kind of ways of thinking of creativity using metaphor which are a a bit more conductive and a bit more in in the control of the person. So I do some experimentation around um, using those, getting people to use different metaphors for creation and seeing what effect that has too.
0: I think it's really interesting you talk about comedy being treated like a battlefield. I um... I've worked and it was never a, an intention. I, I've worked in sales pretty much most of my life. And I've always been interested in the mindset of a salesperson because most salespeople probably got the mindset of a psychopath. But, um, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but what was interesting, I did an intensive sales training course with my sales, with the sales team I had at the time. And the guy teaching the course went, the best book you would ever read in business as a salesperson Is a book by Sun Tzu called The Art of War. Yeah, Alarm Bells. Alarm Bells. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, war and fight and battle metaphors seem to go everywhere, you know, like even in business, oh, let's go and crush the opposition. Let's go and smash budget and stuff like that.
2: And yeah, interesting. It, It certainly does. And that was something I've got another side project called Metaphors of Business, which is just about that which I'm not doing quite as much about at the moment, but it's around there looking at the metaphors that businesses use or different parts of business use. And you're totally right. And you probably, if you think back to those places, it probably was a bit like a battlefield. It probably wasn't that nice working there because the whole place is set up with that in mind. And the the thing is, if you're a soldier with a gun, you shoot, right? Um, And who are you shooting in this case? It's the customers. It's like, what? And they feel like that. Yeah, whereas if, if the place had a metaphor of, um, as a salesperson, this it should be like you're treating them like a group of friends, you're going to behave differently, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, if it, if it was, we need to smash budget and kill the opposition. If you couldn't get the customer to commit, you're almost taking them hostage until they do commit. You know, so uh,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> which doesn't work on me. But that, even though I'm very familiar with NLP and how it works and everything, I can see NLP working on me um, much more effectively than that kind of, you know, the kind of oppositional approach to to sales and trying to convince me to do things. Those salespeople that do try and be friendly and talk to you on the same level and use some of those techniques, you know, I'm much
2: more susceptible to that. Yeah. But that's, they're trying. That's the thing. They're not, they're not being, they're trying. So they're using a technique Mm. and, and that it's not real. No, it's not real. But if they were being with, if they were um, treating you like you're one of their friends and genuinely were doing that, then you would likely feel that it's real. I mean,
0: yeah, it would be even more yeah. effective. Yeah. <laughs> so how long has Metaphors of Comedy been going and and where do you see you going with it?
2: I guess I started in earnest in 2016 when I did my first workshops in London um, and been doing it a couple of times a year since then, sometimes a little more. And so far I've covered about a 10th of the material that I've written up around it. So I've got so, so much more to develop. And my main aim over the next while is to develop that stuff further. Um, look to make it into a longer um, workshop or a multi-part workshop and could just continue delivering that, delivering the workshop um, as it evolves. I, could see it work I could see it becoming a level one two three kind of thing like level one is what mm-hmm. you guys already came to and then level level two might be around some of other, other newer contents and level three might be the harder ones again um, I guess partly because the concepts do get more difficult and with the you kind of need the background of the first couple to get through them um, but where do what do I want to go with it oh I, I never really like to specify exactly where I want something to go because I like to go with things and see how they develop and Um, not miss out on that because I'm focusing on where I want it to go. But I want to continue delivering it. I'm looking to do twice yearly courses in New Zealand, likely one in Auckland and one somewhere else. I'm talking to someone about Christchurch at the moment and try them out in Australia too because I've never done them in Australia.
0: Mm. Yeah. Cool. Which
2: I think Australia might be a good place for it because uh, other kind of psychological based training things do well here. So when NLP was in its kind of heyday, Australia was a place that took it in a lot and a lot of people went on training um, compared to, say, New Zealand. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes.
0: Touching back on something you talked about, you you only briefly mentioned politics a little bit earlier. And and when we met previously, you said you don't tend to bring politics much into your comedy, if at all. And I was interested whether that was because there's an art to doing political comedy, whether it just doesn't interest you and it doesn't fit with what you do, or whether you've got concerns that if you do political comedy like a Ben Elton or an Alexis Sale, you kind of paint yourself in a political corner. And then does that then create issues for you getting gigs if you're painted in a political corner? I'm just very interested because me and Matt cover politics on this, we're very open about our political allegiances, mm. both on the show and in the comedy scene. There's nobody, I don't think, in the comedy scene that knows us would know would not know which side I vote and which side Matt vote. We're both very <laughs> open about it. Um, probably judging by the blue top I've got on tonight and the red top Matt had last night. But really interested in your thoughts around politics in comedy and why you don't delve into it.
2: Partly, I don't delve into it because it's something I don't know. I know how to play the flute. I know how to write jokes. Um, I would have to. It's something that is, I guess, politics in general hasn't been something I've paid a load of attention to over the years, which might be a privileged position to be able to say that, potentially. Um, and t- I guess until a couple of years ago when I was in the UK and Brexit and COVID came along, all of a sudden things affected me. Um, yeah. Um, (laughs) so it just wasn't in my it wasn't part of the way that I thought thinking about I didn't understand the difference between conservatism and um, conservative or progressive thinking I didn't understand these things but not from um, that they were confusing or anything just because it's not really something I'd put a lot of focus on and by the time I I guess by the time Brexit and COVID came around, I had to pay a bit more attention to what was going on. Um, my comedy act was very well established and it was very well established as me not being an educator or a philosopher, but more like an entertainer, a clown. And that's how I think of my persona. It's an entertainer and um, it's just escap- escapism. So my act is about like silly fun. So it would be pretty weird for it to have a message.
1: Mm-hmm. I think
2: it, would, it just wouldn't fit for my act as a clown to have a message of, <laughs> so, so it doesn't. Um, so therefore, I guess I haven't had to worry about whether political stuff would affect my career as such, because I just don't do it. Yeah. But, but it's not because I, it's not because I don't think I could, if I studied it, maybe I could, but it's just, yeah, not a fit not yeah. a fit for my kind of act, which for a lot of, a lot of acts, it is a really, really good fit. Um, like John Oliver, for instance, but yeah. I think this question comes from
1: Darren's constant fear of being canceled.
0: <laughs> what do you mean? My constant fear? We I think we know that it's happened in times. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> It hasn't. It has, you know it. <laughs> So, and I uh, do hear
2: people say that. I do hear people say, oh, the way that... I'm not putting words in your mouth. This might not be what you think at all. But I do hear a lot of comics say, "Um, be got to be, be very careful what you say because it might have this effect or this effect. Um, people might um, take it out of context or might think that you're serious when you're um, parodying something um, and then therefore think you're a, a, a big baddie um, or something. And often I have people say to me, isn't this is a problem, isn't it? How do you deal with it? And just frankly, with my stuff, there is no deal with it because because <laughs> there awesome. isn't a deal with it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've watched quite a few of your YouTube videos now, and I can't see you getting cancelled for anything, to be honest, Richard. <laughs>
2: I, I can't imagine it. No, I mean the YouTube videos are another level of silly, really. Than my stand-up comedy.
0: <laughs> but but your point that you just said about it being a problem probably go back to like last august september when we're running into the election i was quite vocal and got quite heavily shouted down on a few channels and i did start going oh you know maybe this could be an issue and then i took time out and i came back and i went actually i don't fucking care what people think that's actually who i am and what i am and if that does cause me to get cancelled and don't get me wrong richard i wasn't outright far right kind of you know that wasn't it but I just thought, well, actually, that's who I am. Why should I not be who I am? And if it does mean that I got cancelled from somewhere, I'm actually not going to worry about it because really what I'm talking about is not extreme, right? It's sure. a point of view. And if someone can't take that point of view, well, I'm probably better off not doing that gig, to be honest with you.
2: Well, yeah. And, I mean, it will be about, about, like any comedy, finding an audience. I mean, if, you're, if your um, opinions in ways are a little different from the vast majority doesn't mean there's not a a niche of loads of people would be interested in it. Probably just like doing flute comedy. I mean, it's a niche, (laughs) you know, Um, (laughs) you just got to find an audience with it.
1: (laughs) That's right. And that's in the digital world. And um, as someone who's involved a little bit in the kind of writing side of things as well, um, you know, it's all about finding the niche. It's like on Amazon. um, If you write um, Sasquatch porn, there is actually a market for it. There is a genuine market. You can write uh, Sasquatch porn ebooks and you can make a modest living. I'm um, very modest. You can make a modest living.
2: <laughs> a thousand of true fans, kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So mm. I think, you know, um, I think Darren, Sasquatch
2: porn
0: might How'd be the way to go. Sasqu-
2: is- How'd you spell Sasquatch again? B I G F O O T. Have you heard of the thousand fans thing? What's thousand that? 1,000 True, true Fans. Oh,
1: 1,000 True Fans. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? That's a good
2: stuff. I think it's quite interesting. Um, mm. the, the kind of whole idea, uh, theory around is if you have a 1,000 people who really, really properly like what you do and are going to buy into whatever you do, like proper fans, then that's going to be enough to, probably going to be enough to earn your living forever. Um, and um, it's really interesting because the thousand seems quite small. Like generally, I think when people come into comedy or come into music, I think I'm going to need millions and millions of people like me to do any good. And so they try to be something for everybody to try and get those millions and millions of people. But they're also competing against millions and millions of artists as well. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas niching. Yeah. If, if, I mean, I, I can imagine that there are going to be a thousand people who are uh, musicians and who like flutes and recorders. And um, a bit of lightness and funny and silliness around it that can get to like that. I, I can imagine it thousands are a possible number. I tend to find two or three at each show that, that like it quite a lot enough to go and go on my websites and go to my YouTube and follow the things. Um, I can see that as being achievable.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's the model that Patreon is based on right so patreon for those listeners who don't know is a service which um, creatives can sign up to and basically encourage people to follow them on patreon and they can offer rewards and extra content to people who pay and the more you pay um, often setting up regular monthly payments the more you pay the more services you get access to and there's people on there who have got you know they might have a thousand people paying five dollars five us dollars a month and actually, five thousand US dollars a month—it's not a bad sum of money, depending on where yeah. you live.
2: It might be all they ever need.
1: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, some they might actually have five hundred people paying five dollars a month, and another five hundred paying ten dollars a month as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's really achievable, and I, I think the mm-hmm. thousand true fans thing is definitely something that comedians need to be aware of and yeah. thinking about.
2: I don't know if it's something which happens in New Zealand and comedy because I haven't really been around New Zealand comedy much at all over the years. But it's certainly in kind of open mic stages of comedy in other countries, it's, it seems people always seem to start as an emulator. So they always start emulating something, someone else, which kind of makes sense because mm. you're new at something you've got to and you think, what's doing this thing? And you look at the people you like, oh, they're doing this thing. And therefore I'm somewhat influenced by their, how they do this thing. And often though, the people that people are influenced by at the beginning are people who are very, have got a very, very big fan base already that they worked a long, um, 10, 20 years to get and the people like them because they're so good at doing just that and they're that niche and kind of coming along as a new person trying to get in on something yeah when you're new at things you're you've got work to do before you get good no matter what who you are or what you do and you're not going to be jimmy carr straight away or frankie boyle straight away
0: and all of a sudden fans turn up and you know we promote podcasts and stuff and sometimes you go god like yeah there's listeners out there but you think oh there's going to be people coming to our page and following us and it's actually it's you know it does take a huge amount of time and you have to be out there a fair bit doing the hard mm. yard before you get that recognition you know mm. it's um they see people oh this person's had a million views of their video yeah there's also another two million people that have had one view of their video
2: mm. you know? yeah. or or i see somebody who's got um uh Twenty or 30,000 views on your new videos, which is nice. But I re- And I look back at the old videos from the last five years and they've all got similar. But I remember three years ago when all of them had 10 views and yeah. it's, it's the later on um, where they've got better. They've invested themselves, got better at doing this stuff and got an audience. Then people have gone back and looked at the, that catalog. And I think in comedy, I think uh, as a stand-up comic, I was told this when I was new and I didn't want to hear it, and I think that might be a common thing is that it takes you eight to 10 years to get good. Mm. And I didn't want to hear that. Cause I was like, oh, I'm I'm in my, I've done my 30th gig. Now I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, so cute. Yeah. My sixth yeah. gig, by the way, is I booked a one hour show in my hometown um, with just me and I hired a professional to open, but that's another story. Um, oh,
1: wow. That's, <laughs> interesting. that's no, an I'm interesting gonna... story because we had, um, Ed Rivera, who's a, who's a, really good up-and-coming New Zealand comic from Mexico um, on the other, a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about something similar in his hometown, putting on a big gig accidentally (laughs) because of a misunderstanding. And so, um, I mean, don't have to talk about it if you don't want, but I'm very interested in putting on a gig in your hometown and hiring a professional. Did you sell out? Did you do well?
2: Oh, yeah, there was was enough people there to fill up the place, large, and not all just people I knew, um, but probably about, 80 audience Mm, I kind of I guess it's it's a common thing I see with others in comedy now see myself do it is at the beginning I think you kind of have to feel like you're a bit better than you are in some ways just to keep going Yes, Like I think if you really knew when you're brand new, how bad you were, you'd think this is impossible. <laughs> I can't do this. You've got to have a bit of false confidence. I think yeah. that, that you think it's real confidence. And I mean, I genuinely thought um, after this, these um, five or six months that, yeah, I've, um I've done jokes in public and I've had people laugh at my five, 10, 15 minute sets. I'll put it together in an hour. And that's totally cool. That, that whole situation isn't weird at all. Um, I've still got the video and I watch back and, it, you know, I was as I would expect someone to be after going for six months. Um, okay. Okay. At times, a bit bad at times, but um, yeah, that where well, I got to that by saying that, yeah, I have recently realized having to having now been doing comedy for eight years is now I'm at a stage where I'm starting to feel like not that. It's not so much of a delusion that I think I'm okay at it. Yeah. <laughs> <It's a> reality. <laughs> that, that I'm like looking at, like, um, looking at audience reactions and outward feedback. I'm getting more feedback that I can, I can now do this, that my actors as is getting there is, is viable. Yeah, weirdly that it was um, right within that eight to ten years that they kept telling me about all the way back then that's you how go, long I've been going. You're yeah. um
1: you're you'll turn pro about the time you retire from your day job. And that's perfect timing.
2: Yeah. I mean perfect. turning pro and being good at something isn't exactly the same thing though. That's true, no, that's you know, true. You might not turn you still might not turn pro. Yeah. And or um yeah, you, know, you might turn pro and be okay at something.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah. Or um your or who knows, maybe I'm totally wrong in my level of what I think of my act being viable and good now. I look at it two years' time and think oh, I had so much to learn. Probably, I hope so. I hope there's a long way to go. I hope there's more new learning. I hope at 15 years I look back and I think that's great that I've evolved it to what it is now compared to then. I'd love, to be, love to be better. Yeah.
0: So I uh, probably, Matt, I'd disagree with this if you think the predominant audience of this podcast is people that have probably been doing comedy six months to four years and then general people that are interested in some of our material. Have you got any sort of advice or tips on how people write, develop, how you keep going, how you, you know, just how people get into a routine without obviously giving anything away that you give your teachings or anything like that, but just quick one, two minute bit of pieces of advice for people to really from someone who's been through that eight years, and now you know, obviously, the other end of that.
2: Okay. Um, one thing which is might be a bit contrary to what is out there and what people say. People say gig as much as you possibly can. I don't quite believe in that quite so much. I believe in gig enough that you gig enough that you um, are doing it enough that you've got enough to analyze to then improve. I find if people gig too much, then they don't have the time to look and reflect on how they're going and what they're doing badly and what they're doing well, and therefore to actually really analyze and think about how they can improve. So um, I guess my one tip would be pay attention to the result of what you're doing. So video yourself practice in front of the mirror, although these are things that people find cringy, but it totally works when you're watching videos of yourself back with a crowd, have a look at when you see laughter, um, check whether it's the same kind of laughter that the people who are more experienced than you are getting. So if you've got a headliner who's been on TV for ages in the room afterwards, is the laughter they're getting the same as the laughter you're getting? There's different kinds of laughter. Sometimes you might be getting a bit of a false positive with laughter because people might feel awkward. You want (laughs) to know that. You want to know that. Because um, otherwise, mm. you might think that's normal, that's proper laughter. I'm succeeding, or some, yeah. Sometimes you might be getting jeering, sarcastic laughter. <laughs> so you need to, um, <laughs> yeah, comp- yeah, comp- yeah. Really analyze, really think about it. And when it comes to writing, I would say um, write a lot more than you think you need to. Yes, write a lot more than you think you need to, um, and. I would put out a challenge that it's a good idea to sit down and write a hundred jokes in a day or a hundred funny things in a day. And if you can do that, then you'll be fine. <laughs> and you'll probably find that you if you write a hundred things, you might have six or seven or ten or 12 of them which end up being good bits, but if you didn't write the hundred you've never got to them. Yeah. yeah.
0: everybody.' to write a hundred funny things, don't it, Matt? Sorry. Take takes you about a year to write a hundred funny things.
1: I can write a hundred funny things um, very quickly. The problem is remembering them
0: ah, yeah. or
1: other, other, convincing other people that they're funny.
2: If you think you they're funny, why? then there must be something funny about them. If you think something's funny, then it's just a matter of translating it for them exactly. to get it. And that's
1: why I keep telling the audience, mm. I am going to keep doing this joke. you <laughs>
0: laugh. You had such a great moment at the quiz last night.
1: (laughs) Yeah, great in great in square
0: square quotes. (laughs) So, is there anything else that you'd like to pass on, Richard, or is that pretty much covered everything from um, an advisory, a short advisory for new and upcoming?
2: I think any more might be counter uh, might not be useful. It's, it can be so easy to take on too much information um, and take on too many opinions. And um, I think introversion in this case is quite a good thing. So instead of getting opinions of getting a loads and loads of opinions of what you should do, pay attention to the actual real result of what's happening um, in the room and use that as your guide.
1: Well, we'll yeah. also put we'll put links in the show notes to the um dot as well, where people can see about your metaphors of comedy yeah.
2: stuff
1: and, and express an interest or whatever. Um, is there anything else you want to promote as well? While we're t- on that subject, that you want to either talk about, um, that you've got coming up, or um, that you want us to link to, or anything like that? No. <laughs> cool. well, where I'm you? I just, I'm not editing out that pause because that's. That's
2: a great pause. That's a quality pause. Yeah. Where am I playing this weekend? Yeah. I'm gigging at a um, show called Seven Comedians in a place called Wyong, a bit north of Sydney, um, which I'm looking forward to. A friend of uh, a friend of mine who I've written quite a lot with is a promoter for that, and he's running some really good shows and sells them out all the time. Um, and my favorite, my favourite professional club in Sydney, which is also the first club which gave me proper professional Saturday, Friday and Saturday night gigs called happy endings comedy club. I'm doing, um, a six 30 and eight 30 show on Saturday there. Yeah. Which I'm really looking forward to one of my favorite clubs in the world, I'd say. And it, and it didn't show that you have been away so long because your performances in the show in the course were good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I'm going to take that. <laughs>
0: he was all right. He was all right. <laughs> but, um, and if there's nothing else, Richard, um, We really appreciate you giving us your time over there in Sydney. I'm incredibly jealous that you're in Sydney at the moment. And um, there's some fantastic insights there for young, upcoming, and and even those that have been at it for a couple of years. Um, There's some incredibly valuable tips from there, from someone that's been through that first eight-year period. So, for me, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank
2: you. Appreciate having me. It's been fun.